everybody, it's Drake. In today's episode, we speak to the superbug slayer, Dr. Stephanie Strathy. She's an associate dean of global health sciences and Harold Simon professor in the Department of Medicine at UC's San Diego School of Medicine. On today's episode, we talk about superbugs, the imminent global health crisis caused by antibiotic-resistant drugs, and we discuss her book, The Perfect Predator, which chronicles the incredible story of saving her husband with phage therapy. Friends, colleagues, and superbugs, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences and Harold Simon Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, Adjunct Professor John Hopkins and Simon Fraser University's Time Magazine's 50 Most Influential People in Healthcare for 2018, and author of The Perfect Predator, A Scientist's Race to Save Her Husband from a Deadly Superbug, a memoir, Dr. Stephanie Strapti. Hey, Stephanie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're really, like, really excited to have you on, Stephanie. And uh, uh, one of my favorite titles, I think, I don't know if it's a self-titled or you gave it to yourself, but Superbug Slayer? Who, who, where'd that come from? <laughs> Is that you? Were you given that title? <laughs> well, somebody called me a Superbug Slayer and I kind of, it sounded really kind of like, you know, Lara Tomb Raider kind of, uh, yeah. like, you know, kick-ass uh, Indiana Jones. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll accept it. But I guess <laughs> I got that moniker because uh, I was credited with saving my husband's life. Um, he had a superbug infection that was resistant to all antibiotics, and uh, the doctors had pretty much given up on him. And I was able to resurrect a hundred-year-old forgotten cure to save his life with the help of a global village of researchers. And uh, that's how I kind of got into this strange new world of phage therapy that I'm going to tell all your listeners about. Amazing. This is so interesting. And I think, you know, well-deserved Superbug Slayer title there for sure. So let's talk about it then, Stephanie. What is a Superbug? I mean, this is kind of a perfect time, I feel like, to talk about Superbugs in the world right now. Yeah, a Superbug is a bacteria that's resistant to multiple antibiotics. So um, if you hear that a superbug is pan-resistant, that means that there's no antibiotics left in the pipeline that will be able to treat it. We'll talk about your book and and the story about your husband as well, because I think it's so interesting and and obviously we're we're super excited to hear about it. What what are phages and what is phage therapy and, and, you know, what kind of got you thinking about phage therapy as a, as a possibility for these superbugs? Well, phages are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. The full name is bacteriophage. It comes from the Greek uh, to eat or to, va- or to devour. And uh, phages were actually discovered by a French-Canadian scientist, Félix de Harel, in 1917. So that was well before the first antibiotic penicillin was discovered. And um, they, were, they actually were used to treat people in the 1920s and 30s uh, regularly. And the first phage therapy center opened up in what is now um, Tbilisi, Georgia, uh, in the 1930s. And unfortunately, that was around the time World War II was, was gearing up. And then it got a, a cloud over it because it, was, it got the reputation of being like a Russian, you know, pinko commie science medicine. And so as a result, the West forgot all about it and endorsed antibiotics when they came on the scene and phage therapy has been kind of you know buried until recently because uh, we're running out of antibiotics and so um, phages are now being seen as an alternative or an, or an adjunct to antibiotic treatment so you're here to resurrect the phage 
Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's <laughs> ironic because phages have actually been used in science and, and uh, you know, for the last, you know, 50 years. In fact, uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier just won um, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their discovery of CRISPR. People will know that as the molecular scissors that are being used to do gene editing. But really, CRISPRs are the part of the immune system of bacteria that were developed to attack phage. Like it's part of their armamentary uh, against phage. So phages have been, you know, like part of, of, of science for decades, but the applications of them in phage therapy were almost forgotten, except mm -hmm. in, in the former Soviet Union. Oh, wow. That's an incredible sort of history to the phage. I, I, I want to get into, um, I, I just want to cover something quickly. What is antibiotic resistance? Like, how would you define that if you were to explain it to a layperson like myself? Well, bacteria are multiplying all the, the time and um, they develop different mutations, right? It's like the survival of the fittest. So just like, you know, we're evolving as a species, bacteria are evolving, but they're evolving much faster. And bacteria that acquire antibiotic resistance genes actually have, you know, um, you know, a benefit over other bacteria because when we're treating these infections with antibiotics, the, the ones that aren't killed off because they have these resistance genes are the ones that survive and conquer and go on to attack, uh, you know, us again. So uh, unfortunately, our misuse and overuse of antibiotics, especially in agriculture um, and, um, you know, in livestock, um, is really what's been driving this antibiotic crisis because we've been using, and I say we collectively, the world, um, many, most countries have been using the same antibiotics to treat like, you know, pigs and cows and sheep um, and also citrus trees and uh, other crops with the same antibiotics that we're using to treat humans. And that is what's been spreading these antibiotic resistance genes around the world. Oh. Okay. That's, that's scary. So, or it sounds scary, but what is the risk to humans then? Well, the risk to humans is that right now about 700,000 people per year, and that's a low estimate, are dying from superbug infections every year. These are infections that used to be treated with antibiotics, but now those antibiotics are useless because the, the, the bacteria that are superbugs, they've, you know, collected a lot of these different antibiotic resistance genes. The one that was um, killing my husband, its nickname is Arachobacter because so many veterans came back from the Middle East with this organism and it used the um, poor um, infection control of the military's um, medevac system to populate itself in regional hospitals all over Western Europe and North America. And so that's where you acquired this particular superbug the most is actually in hospitals. And the U.S. alone, 15% of, of hospital patients acquire a superbug when they're there. And in fact, the COVID pandemic is making the superbug crisis worse. So it's the next pandemic and it's right behind COVID. Wow, that's that's worrisome. Well, it should <laughs> to say be. the least. Well, by <laughs> by the year 2050, that 10 million people are going to be dying from superbug infections. That's one person every 3 seconds. Now that's more than cancer, motor vehicle accidents. I mean, I can't stress how, you know, severe this is. And we've known about this for quite some time, but um we're not doing much about it. And unfortunately, you know, um it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. And so you say that in 2050, that, that's an alarming number is one every three person every three seconds. What is the like, what are the most common superbugs or like, I guess, the deadliest superbugs right now? And what's the rate at which people are dying right now from superbugs? 
Well, um, there's a lot of different superbugs that are out there, but um, mm. the ones that are considered to, the, to be the most dangerous are the escape pathogens. So each of those letters, E-S-K-A-P-E, so it's spelled a little different, okay. stands for a different superbug that's thought to be a major threat to human health. So okay. most people will have heard of MRSA. Um, that's methicillin-resistant staph aureus. That was the first superbug that was identified in the early 1960s in Britain and is now spread all over the world. The a in escape is Acinetobacter bomanii, and that is the superbug that my husband acquired, and it's supposed to be um, the number one on the list of the World Health Organization's dirty dozen, the 12 worst superbugs. Okay. Wow. Uh, so these are all massive names I've never heard of before with these superbugs. Uh, what does it, so what does, and we'll talk about your husband with uh, Acinetobacter Acinetobacter Acinetobacter. Just call it Arachobacter. <laughs> That's what I call it. <laughs> that makes it a lot easier. I appreciate that. Uh, so with, with you know, these superbugs, do they all present similarly or is there a lot of differences in how they, they will present and what, you know, if someone were to have one, how are they to be like, what are the symptoms that they would clue in to know that that was a superbug that they were dealing with? Well, you know, it really depends on the type of infection. So um, these days, about 30% of urinary tract infections among women are, are superbugs. Um, and so, um, you know, if you ended up having, you know, burning when you go pee or whatever, um, you or see blood in your urine, you might go to your doctor and say, you know, um, I'm not feeling very well. And then the doctor might do a dipstick and, um, and then prescribe some antibiotics without even culturing it. Because it, they're guessing, well, it's probably E. coli or or maybe another organism that they're familiar with, uh, because it it we don't have these rapid diagnostic assays that are available in most you know clinics and hospitals. So um, if the uh, person doesn't respond to those antibiotics, then the doctor might prescribe another antibiotic. Or if they're smart, then they actually do a culture and then they see what um, is called an antibiogram can be ordered, and that's an antibiotic susceptibility profile file and they'll be able to match the best antibiotics but when that was done for my husband 15 different antibiotics were resistant right off the top so um and that's what we're facing these days is that sometimes you know a, a simple cut or you know you go into the hospital for you know a hip or knee replacement and you come out with a superbug and you know it's uh it's something that is leading to a loss of life and limbs i mean i i know people that have had their limbs amputated as a result of having an infection that we used to be able to treat a couple decades ago yeah absolutely well let's uh i think this is a perfect time. Let's talk about your book and how you got into this because it's such an amazing story. Um, because you, by trade, you're not a super bug researcher, right? That's right. I'm, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist trained actually at the University of Toronto. I have a rusty old degree in microbiology, <laughs> um, but I've been an AIDS researcher for the last several decades. And unfortunately, um, my husband and I, when we were on vacation in Egypt, he acquired a bacterial infection and, you know, I just thought that he maybe it was food poisoning or something. Right. And he got really sick. Um, there was no hospital. They, we took him to a clinic. There they diagnosed pancreatitis and inflammation of the pancreas. And I thought, okay, well, that's great. We should be able to treat that, right? Well, it turns out that that was just the beginning because um, a, a gallstone had stuck in his bile duct and caused a, a large abscess to form. And inside, 
you know, that was a perfect place for a superbug to move into. And so that ended up to be what was taking him down. So we were medevaced first to Germany and then back home to San Diego, um, where we both work at the University of California, San Diego. So because I'm in the Department of Medicine, um, my colleagues were the ones that were caring for my husband. And I'm not a medical doctor, but um, I've acquired a lot of firsthand knowledge about life in the ICU because my husband was in the hospital for nine months. Um, four of uh, those months were in the ICU, two months on the ventilator. And essentially he was dying a little bit each day. And um, when the doctor said that he wasn't going to make it, um, I decided to have a conversation with him, even though he was in a coma. And I asked him if he wanted to live. And it was obviously the hardest conversation I've ever had. But I said, honey, you know, like, I know you're fighting really hard. Um, and you may want to give up. And if that's what you want to do, that's okay. But I want to grow old with you. And if you want to live, please squeeze my hand and I'll try to find you know something that will fight this thing. And so um, he squeezed my hand. Now, mind you, I mean, he was having these crazy hallucinations. And at the time, I learned much later that he thought he was a snake. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was kind of like this hallucination that happened because they were using a bronchoscope to like, you know, put you know down his his mouth and mm -hmm. into, into his um, esophagus and um and so i guess he somehow you know in his adult brain you know it was it, it had, the, the bacteria was causing you know toxins and he was getting a lot of uh, opiates and but anyway he he said that he, it took him a minute to squeeze my hand because he had to figure out how to wrap his body around my hand to squeeze it wow. because snakes don't wow. have hands so yeah i was so, gonna say he's the first <laughs> snake with a hand like that yeah <laughs> well got a hand <laughs> you know in, in our book we have his hallucinations which he dictated to me and they're yeah. like just like woo like like a salvador dolly kind of painting um yeah they're, they're pretty crazy but anyway because he squeezed my hand i knew that he wanted to live and i did what anybody right. would do. I went home and I hit the internet. And mm -hmm. um, there are search engines out there that are, you know, better than even Google Scholar. Um, the one that most scientists use is called PubMed. So mm -hmm. P-U-B-M-E-D, the National Library of Medicine developed it. It's free. You can put any kind of keywords in there. And scientific literature um, will pop up. So within an hour, I found this paper that was talking about alternative treatments for multidrug resistant acinetobacter bomanii, the superbug that was taking him down. And buried in that was something called phage therapy. That is an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah. And, wow. And, and the book itself is something that I would highly recommend to anybody that's listening and we'll, we'll recommend it later in the episode. But let's talk about phage therapy because I mean, wow, first off, amazing research skills on you <laughs> to you know, like almost like a hacker online just going in and finding exactly what you need. But like that is a skill that obviously researchers strive for is the ability to find things that they need. And I've, I've searched months for ones for an article that didn't even really do what I wanted it to do. <laughs> well, you know, there's a certain amount of zeitgeist in this whole thing. I mean, yeah. you know, all the planets lined up because yeah. um, it isn't just like you can go to the supermarket and purchase phages, right? Or even go to the, your right. doctor and say, hey, let's get some phage therapy because it's not licensed. It's, it's, um, it's experimental in the West because the clinical trials that are needed to show that it works haven't been done. 
again, because of this bias, um, you know, due to the fact that it was seen as like a Russian medicine. So, um, you know, there are phage therapy centers in Tbilisi and in Rokla, Poland. Um, but, you know, there was nothing available at the time. This was um, early 2016. And so um, I went back to the internet after my colleague said, look, if you find phages that will match his bacterial isolate, then we'll call the FDA and see if they'll give us permission to use this on an experimental basis. And so I made a list of researchers that were studying his superbug and phage, and I wrote them cold and sent them, you know, our story, but also a picture of Tom lying in bed with his t-shirt draped uh, over him saying, I survived Arachobacter. And he didn't, you know, he wasn't surviving by any stretch at the time. You know, he was on life support. So luckily, Texas A&M researcher uh, Ryland Young got back to me the very next day, again, a total stranger, and he agreed to turn his lab into a command center. And wow. a PhD student there slept in the lab and found phages directly sourced from sewage and barnyard waste that matched my husband's bacteria. Now, you might be thinking, like, what? Sewage? As <laughs> yeah, what? Well, and, you know, and that's kind of crazy because, like, but when you think about it, if you've got a bacteria that's in somebody's gut and you're trying to find the perfect predator, if you will, to kill it, then the best place to go is sewage because there's a lot of bacteria there. And then there's a lot of like, you know, of these phages that are gobbling them up. So, so that's actually a really good place to find phages. And now I get to tell my husband because he lived through this and he's full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That, I mean, that's absolutely incredible. So, so they found this phage in barnyard manure. Yeah. Um, do, do they give you any indication how many different phages they looked at or, or what was the time length in terms of getting to this particular one? Well, that's the interesting part. I mean, if this was an antibiotic that was being developed from scratch, that would take 10 to 15 years and over a billion dollars. But yeah, phage yeah. are plentiful. There's 10 million trillion trillion phages estimated to be on the planet. That's 10 to the power of 31. And so they're everywhere, right? They're they're already in our bodies, on our skin, in soil, in water, whatever. It's just a matter of finding them. So these folks had, had some phages that had already been identified and characterized, um, but none of those were matches so they actually went to like raw you know environmental samples like from sewage <laughs> to find phages and and that was done within a week um the purification process took um a bit longer but from um and we also had a team at the navy that found phages to match and that's part of the story too but um from the very first email that i sent to the day that we administered phage therapy into tom's body was only three weeks wow wow three weeks oh my goodness that's that's an incredible turnaround. I, I I just really want to touch on that. Uh, your mention about the Navy. In the back of the book, you mentioned that there's a clandestine Navy biomedical center. Are you allowed to talk about that, or is that <laughs> well, is that all hush hush? Yeah, well, the thing is, is that like we never knew that the Navy and the Army were working on phage therapy because you know they hadn't really published very much about this, and they hadn't ever used their phage on human beings. They just used them on rats and rabbits and mice. And so um, we found out from the FDA official when we contacted them to say we had some phages from Texas and could we get what's called an EIND, which is basically um, treating this as an emergency investigational new drug, even though the drug is alive, right? Because they're multiplying Mm -hmm. within the body. Um, The FDA official knew that the Army and Navy was working on phage therapy. And so she's the one who put um, us in touch with them. 
And um, the Army said no way were they getting involved in the treatment of a civilian. And the Navy uh, guy, uh, Lieutenant Commander Theron Hamilton, he was a dead ringer for Tom Cruise, I swear to God. <laughs> um, he said, hmm, well, do you have his bacterial isolate? And he's saying this to Dr. Chip Schooley, who was the head of the Infectious Disease Division, who my colleague who was overseeing Tom's case. And, you know, he made a compelling argument. And so, you know, he says, yeah, we can send you the bacterial isolate. And he said, well, I guess, you know, I would need permission to send this to you if we have any phage that are match. Um, but he says, I, I better to ask forgiveness than permission because he says, I'll work <laughs> to see if we have any phages that match first. And if they, if we do, then I got to go up the chain to the admirals and ask for permission. So he found phages that matched. In fact, it was a, a fellow that he works with who is Dr. Biswajit Biswas, who's affectionately known as the phage whisperer. I, I'm not making this up. It's, it's, this is where it's, it's kind of crazy. A bunch of superhero names in these. Yeah, I know, I know. So, so he found phages that matched. And, um, you know, and that was, that was really amazing um, because, it, and you may be wondering, okay, well, why do you need so many phages if you already had the ones from Texas? Well, the thing is, is that the, there's basically invisible warfare going on at a microscopic level between phage and bacteria. They're duking it out all the time. And if you only have one phage um, that is a match, then the bacteria can become resistant very quickly. Ideally, you want multiple phage that attack different receptors. And that's, uh, you know, the, the window and doors that they use to enter the bacterial cell. So, um, you know, in this case, um, having multiple phages was was you know, going to be a good idea. And so when they found four phages that matched the, yes, um, you know, Lieutenant Commander Hamilton had to go to the admirals and they freaked out on him. I mean, he was called insubordinate. He was almost mm. fired. And um, then um, one of the admirals, um, actually it was a captain um, who was also um, a medical doctor. And he said, don't you realize that if this works, that we're going to save this man's life and it's going to jumpstart the field like 10 years into the future and more than that we're going to beat the, the army <laughs> and that's what did it so that part is not in the book because the navy the navy folks didn't want it to, you know to, to show that this competition between the navy and the army is uh you know i guess all branches of military have that kind of um, i'm better than you kind of thing yeah the competitive but, um, but ironically, now um, we work more closely with the Army um, in terms of um, treating other superbug uh, cases with phage because they've really gotten into it. So it really did make a difference. It was seen as kind of a watershed moment in the strange history of phage therapy because after we injected these phages, a billion phages per dose every two hours into my husband, even though he was like within hours of dying, I literally signed the consent form for kidney dialysis the day that we started the phage therapy. He woke up three days afterwards lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand oh my goodness wow three days wow yep i mean his uh clinical course was up and down all over the place but you know um he, he was an n of one we can't say you know this is yeah. a clinical trial or whatever no, but the, the doctors were convinced because they said nothing was turning this around i mean he was on a, a, a steep downward trajectory and then all of a sudden boing you know and so mm -hmm. yeah so like the case was it's now known as the patterson case it, it got published and we've treated lots of other patients with phage therapy we now have the first dedicated phage therapy center in north america called 
called IPATH. That's the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics. It's a nonprofit based at the University of California, San Diego. And now other phage programs are popping up around the country too. I mean, there's one at Yale, one at Baylor. The Mayo Clinic uh, treated their first patient last year. We've had lots of requests from Canada, and I'm yeah. hoping that we can have an IPATH of the North in Canada at some point. But Health Canada has not yet approved um, a, a case of phage therapy, but um, it's partly because by the time we get phages to match um, the person who, you know, they have to be seriously, you know, life-threatening ill, Ill um, yeah. we haven't got there in time. So um, hopefully, you know, within the next couple of months, we'll have treated the first patient in Canada and um, spreading, you know, the experience around to the infectious disease doctors who um, really need help in their, their battle against superbugs on the front lines. Yeah. Can you confirm just while we're talking about it right now, what the, uh, what the website is in case people want to get in touch that way with you? Yeah. So, um, iPath has a website. It's ipath.ucsd.edu and our email address is ipath. So I-P-A-T-H at ucsd.edu. And, um, the book website has a lot of um, resources as well, because we've done lots of, um, interviews and, there's been articles in, you know, Scientific American and Nature and Wired Magazine, Huffington Post. Um, the, I mean, literally, um, when his case was publicized, they, it went viral. And we, we've been approached by people from all over the world trying to get phage therapy. Yeah, amazing. What an incredible story. I, I have a question about phage therapy. And, and I, I'm sorry, this comes across as, as probably a fairly ignorant one. But when... I know my gut reaction, no pun intended, when somebody suggests, hey, we're going to introduce this new thing into your body, we kind of get down this road of, of the, you know, the old lady who swallowed a fly. Yeah. You know, so how, how do you how do you deal with that? Is that a concern that you have to be aware of when you're administering phage therapy? Well, we certainly were worried because we decided that because Tom was fully colonized with this superbug that we had to treat him intravenously. And that was part of the innovation in this case. I mean, in the former Soviet Union and in Poland, they've used phage for decades, but they generally don't inject it. They, you know, use it topically or maybe um, someone inhales it through a nebulizer if they have a lung infection. So um, we were concerned that if we didn't remove um, enough of the impurities, because when the bacteria are being killed by the phages and you're growing them up in large quantities, there's something called endotoxin, which is essentially the um, outer coat of the bacterial cell wall. And it's got proteins in it that can be toxic. And so um, you want to remove as much of that as possible if you're going to be injecting it into somebody's bloodstream. And so we didn't know whether or not we'd removed enough. And so that was the scary part. But now that we have done this, and we've done it repeatedly with other patients that we've treated intravenously with phage therapy, we know it's safe. And the FDA considers it to be safe as well. So, um, and of course, our bodies are awash in phage. It's estimated that 30 billion phages move in and out of our bodies every single day. It's just that we huh. haven't really realized that they're there. When we talk about the microbiome, people have been, you know, really thinking more about the bacteria. But the phage are the gatekeepers, right? They're the ones that are turning over the bacterial cell population. And so they live in this kind of a symbiosis most of the time. And so, you know, we don't have to be afraid of them. They're, they're part of nature. And that's, they're kind of like, you know, nature's like green alternative to antibiotics. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you talked a lot about, so, so the phage therapy that's been going on in the States uh, sounds, it's amazing that there's so much, exactly what you, you had predicted and, and the people that you had interacted with predicted was it took off as soon as uh, your husband's case kind of was patient X, right? Um, yep. 
and so with these phage therapies, are are you is it predominantly for the arachabaster, or are there other types that are being found today that have that, that weren't um, you know apparent at that time? Like, are there other superbugs that are being treated now that that weren't? Yes, we've treated a lot of different kinds of superbug infections with phage therapy, not just Arachobacter. Um, so um, there's MRSA, there's um, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a common infection um, in the lung, um, especially cystic fibrosis patients are at high risk of, of that superbug. Um, Klebsiella pneumonia is another one. So um, many of these escape pathogens. Now, there are some um, superbugs that the phage that we find for them uh, are not the kind that, that tend to kill the the bacteria. Um, and those ones we have to genetically manipulate to make them the phage rage kind, as opposed to the sleepy phage that goes in and integrates into the bacterial cell DNA and hits the snooze button. And in fact, um, phage rage, phage rage is what we want. Yeah. Just the phages are raging in the body. Is that what you call it? Well, I mean, okay, let me tell you how this works. So basically, um, you have to imagine that like the, the phage are just like, they look like these little alien spiders. Like almost like one of those AT walkers in Star Wars. Um, yeah, I see a picture that you posted on Twitter. We'll have to share it with the with the episode when it comes out because it's, yeah. it's exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Like the face huggers from Alien, right? That's right. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and they're they're a hundred <laughs> times smaller than bacteria in general, and so they're just bopping along. And if they happen to bump into a bacteria that they match to, then um, then they enter through a receptor. So you think of that like a lock and a key. They're entering a, like a window in, in the bacterial cell, and they enter and. And they turn it into a phage manufacturing plant. So if they're the phage rage kind, they make all of these little baby uh, phages or virions as they're called. And then when given the kill signal, they burst out of the bacterial cell in what's called lysis. And we have uh, in the book, we have a, a book chapter called Lysis to Kill. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm a geek. You know, what are you, you going to say? Oh, I love uh, it. So anyway, these little baby phages, say 100 to 300 of them, per bacterial cell, they go on to attack new bacteria, but only the ones that they match to. So that's the beauty of phage is that they don't mm. kill all the other bacteria in the microbiome, right? Like the antibiotics okay. kind of have this scorched earth kind of approach where they kill not just the bad bacteria, but the friendly bacteria. We know that that's not a good thing. So, um, and then if they don't find their target, the phage are actually just removed by the liver and the spleen as part of the reticuloendothelial system. So okay. they're just kind of screened out and um and so that's also excellent because it's time limited and they once they do yeah. their job they're gone yeah i was about to ask how long they stay if there's if they've completed what their kind of duties are right and so that's that's quite interesting so does that mean if the bacteria were to come back then they you'd have to reintroduce it with that phage therapy to kind of get them back into the system right well, yeah, I mean, it, what was interesting is, is that we were worried that we were going to see the bacteria become resistant to the phage. In fact, um, right. it's it, it's known that, you know, bacteria are just going to you know become resistant to whatever you throw at them, whether it's an antibiotic or a phage. So nobody knew how quickly that was going to happen. And it turned out that the four phages we had from the Texas A&M group and the four phages that the Navy group developed for him, um, they were all hitting the same receptor. So the bacteria became resistant within two weeks although we didn't know it in real time. But luckily, we were testing this. The Navy was wanting to see, okay, are there any bacterial mutants that are going to be resistant to the 
phage that we can see if we can kind of do phage therapy on demand. So once they realized that the um, bacteria was resistant, now mind you, I was freaking out, right? Because I'm thinking yeah. we, we almost saved him. Now he's going to die again. But he was still improving. I mean, what's interesting is his own immune system was kind of rebounding at this point. But nevertheless, I was terrified at the time. And um, the phage whisperer went down to the Laurel, Maryland uh, sewage treatment facility and sourced some raw sewage and found a potophage, which looks kind of like a Game of Thrones like weapon almost, um, but again, microscopic. And um, and then that was also synergistic with an antibiotic. And so that was kind of the one-two punch. So they developed this um, second generation phage cocktail within a couple of days. And to them, that proves that if we had a phage library that was ever expanding to match the ever expanding, you know, superbugs that are out there evolving, then we could actually, you know, source phage within just a couple of days as opposed to having to go back to sewage every time. So that's what I'm fundraising for at iPath now is a giant phage library kind of like a walk-in cooler that has all these phages that are already identified, purified, sequenced, and you know what receptor they hit, and you know what other phages they play nicely with in the sandbox. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's, I think, going to be the solution to moving this forward after we do the clinical trials, which, of course, is, is what's needed next. I, I think it's a really important point that you said that it's synergistic with the antibiotics, because that was actually going to be my next question, is how do antibiotics play with phages? Well, we don't ever think that phages are going to replace antibiotics, um, but if they allow us to reduce the amount of antibiotics that we're using, not just in people, but you can actually use phage on crops and um, in livestock as well. So there's teams of researchers that are working on developing that. Um, But if you also knew that a certain phage was synergistic with an antibiotic, then, you know, you, you would use those together. So we're actually doing, you know, research to try to figure out, you know, that interplay. Um, And of course we need to understand more about how the human immune system interacts with phage and antibiotics together with the well there's a bacterial infection and so there's a lot of basic science that needs to get done so it's a really great area for any of your listeners who are into science into biotechnology i think that genetic engineering of phages and synthetic phages are going to be a part of the future because they're easier to patent the first um, genetically modified phage cocktail was used to treat a girl in the United Kingdom uh, a couple of years ago, and the paper was just published last year. And it's on our website as well, if anybody is interested. Um, the phage there were actually crowdsourced by students in what's called a, the Sea Phages um, Education Program that's headquartered at the University of Pittsburgh. And they have this program that exists all over the world. In fact, the University of Ottawa has a Sea Phages program, and I'm talking to that um, group um, in a couple of weeks. Um, and those phages, um, the one that, that, cured the girl in the UK was sourced from a rotting eggplant in South Africa by a student there. <laughs> it's it's truly an international effort. Yeah, yeah. But that's part of it. That's the, the beauty of this. Yeah. I mean, this is why we wrote this book, right? Because, you know, most people don't realize that superbugs are a global crisis. Uh, other people, you know, might not have ever heard of phages, this 100-year-old, you know, treatment that's been buried, and we didn't want it to be buried again. But also because my husband and I really were privileged. I mean, yes, this was the worst thing that has ever happened to us. But as time has gone on, we see that that this has really been something that has um 
you know, helped revive a treatment that is now saving other lives. And as a result of that, we realized we're privileged. Um, we had the resources and the connections to kind of make this happen. And so we want to help other people that don't have those resources. And so that's why we're telling our story. So if we can do this for one man, we can do it for the planet. Absolutely. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I, wow, I'm, I'm stunned. It's <laughs> such a good story. Wow. Yeah. Um, I guess the last kind of thing, I'm just kind of curious about your husband's progress, because you said, uh, you know, three days he was, he was able to, was it hold your daughter's hand or what, what was the, the accomplishment? Kiss his, that he... daughter, kiss your daughter's hand? Oh, um, his daughter, his oldest daughter's name is Carly. So Carly, he, okay. So Carly. he um, he woke up from a deep coma after you know he was in what they call multi-system organ failure. So he his lungs and his heart and now his kidneys were failing, and so he came back from that. And um, he had lost a hundred pounds, had to learn, you know, to use his cheek muscles again. I mean, when you're on a ventilator for that long, you actually, you can't talk. So all of those muscles that you use to talk and eat and everything are atrophied. So he had to have speech pathologists. He had to learn how to sit, how to stand, how to walk, everything like a baby all over again. And then when he finally came home, there was a lot of rehabilitation because they say that for every month that you're lying in a hospital bed, it takes five months to recover. So he was in the hospital for nine months. So wow. we're five years out of this right now, almost. And, um, you know, he uh, just went for his three and a half mile hike this morning. Um, it went back to work after a year of coming home, uh, published another 30 papers. Um, I mean, he's he's there. He's there. It's, it's not 100 percent. But you know what? I'm not complaining. Damn, I'm scared of what 100% would look like for him. Now. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy if I ever hit 30 papers. Let alone. <laughs> Good God. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I was really curious and I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I want to kind of for our listeners, anybody that, you know, that may be specifically, you know, curious about super, super bugs uh, or might be af- afflicted by it in any way. You know, hearing that kind of story is really interesting and kind of seeing that, you know, what the progression was from, you know, almost on his deathbed to, you know, now how, how amazing he is actually function, how it is amazing that he's functioning so well, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was really a, a, a global village, as I mentioned, but also yeah. the fact that we had family and friends that were spending time with him and, and we talked and, and read and sang to him as if he was able to converse and that kept his brain alive and kept his spirit alive. And so if there's somebody um, who's listening, who has a loved one in a coma, you know, just um, what Tom would say, don't treat them like a loaf of bread, um, treat them with respect and don't talk over them. Um, as if they're not there because they might not necessarily be able to interpret what you're saying, like you and me having this conversation, but, um, but they can hear. Absolutely. And I think I'm curious just to kind of hear aside from the phage therapy, which obviously is a huge factor in this, what do you think was the most important thing for you and your husband throughout this process that really kept you guys going? You know, I think it was really the support that we had from an international community of friends and family and also the, the knowing that total strangers were willing to step up to the plate to help, you know, one man. And it really puts, you know, the kind in humankind. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, no kidding. And, and you know what? The, just hearing your story, you can, you know, you, you talked about some of the grad students spending the night at the labs, you know, running through these things and just the efficiency and, and you know, responsiveness of all these individuals to kick in and help out was, it's just really inspiring. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, that's why I want people to know that, you know, this CFAGES educational program, I'm hoping that I can kind of take it to the developing world too. I mean, those students are the ones that identified phage that are now like being used to treat people. So just because you're a student, you're not powerless. Um, and, you know, it, it's really um, a, a tribute too to the education that I had. I, I went to the University of Toronto. Um, if it wasn't for my virology professor who taught me about phage when I, I was paying attention, I might not have twigged <laughs> onto this. And so when we released our book, um, we actually had like a, a book launch at U of T and I invited him and gave him a copy of the book. And, you know, he had tears of joy. He says, you were listening to me <laughs> 30 years later, you know, to draw from something in your classroom and use it to save yeah. a life it was pretty wild um, yeah so so stephanie this was this is unbelievable it was a really good episode uh and really interesting story what can we what could, what else can we include that you want people to know either about superbugs phage therapy your book whatever it is the floor is yours well, I think everybody who's listening to this um, should realize that superbugs are a major problem. They're the next pandemic. It's already here. And you do have purchasing power when you go to the store. If you are a meat eater, you should buy meat that is antibiotic free. And, um, you know, you should put pressure on your policymakers to um, ensure that antibiotics are not being used in livestock and on fruit trees. Um, we have a long way to go um, in both Canada and the U.S. when it comes to this, as well as internationally. And, um, you know, I think people need to get informed. Um, and also, if you have somebody in your life that is, you know, dying, um, you can get educated and be their advocate. Um, and sometimes, you know, you get lucky. And I certainly did. And that's why I, I really wanted to tell our story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if people want to pick up the story, they can grab that at theperfectpredator.com. Yeah, it's um, on Amazon and all the Amazon. other usual outlets. Um, and uh, the paperback version is coming out November 10th. And it's got nice. some cool photos in the middle. Uh, so the hardcover does too. And one of my favorite is a scanning electron micrograph that was developed by the Department of Homeland Security. And it's got Tom Superbug uh, magnified 100,000 times being attacked by the Navy phages. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Oh, man. You're going to have a, a superhero storybook as well uh, accompanying this, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I think the, the real the real heroes, I mean, my husband fought really hard and um, are the doctors and the nurses. I mean, I can't thank them enough. They um, they really have a hard job. And, and nowadays under COVID, um, it's, it's even tougher for them. But, you know, there's a lot of patients that are contacting us that have had COVID and survived. Um, but what they um, you know are facing now is a superbug. So um, these two epidemics are linked. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so you said that the paperback comes out on November 10th, Stephanie. Yep. How about this? We will be putting this episode out on November 10th to make things easy. Uh, and so we'll be there able to promote go. for your paperback. So if anybody wants that hard copy, I, I personally prefer reading hard, uh, you know the hard copies as well. So the paperback would be great. Um, uh, and yeah, so we'll put it out of the same day. So it makes it a little bit easier for everybody to pick it up. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank, thank you. you. We really appreciate you coming on and telling your, your story and really educating us on superbugs and, and phage therapy. It was amazing. Thanks again, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. With that, we'll call it another episode of Brain Buzz. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You can follow Brain Buzz on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our newsletter, brainbuzzpodcast.com. And join us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Brain Buzz Pod. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.